0: Good morning class, cold didn't keep you away, good to see you this morning, hope more will be coming in a little later. This is the time of, one of the times of the year when pastoral people get a little anxious because they know people are going to go visit family and all that kind of thing and say, how come you're not here for my sermon or my Sunday school class, but it's good to see you this morning and uh, I hope. Um, Well, we're going to try to make it back tonight for uh, Sunday night. Betty and I will pay for that Monday morning, but we're going to try. And then it sounds exciting for Wednesday night too. So we're going to try to make it for both of those. So we'll see you some more unless something happens before Christmas. Folks, we're in Chapter 6 this morning. Chapter 6. I was a little uneasy with the amount of material, and then I realized, you know what? There's some things it'd be nice for them to know, but some things that are not necessarily going to help you to progress through the study. So I'm skipping some things. Just want you to know there are items here that possibly I could cover that uh, I am not. We're in chapter six this morning and we'll, we'll begin. We're going to begin at verse seven. You recall that as we be, go into chapter six, we're beginning the sealed judgments. The sealed judgments uh, introduce the trumpets, and then the trumpets introduce the vile uh, judgments. And by the way, I haven't made mention of this, but there are different theories as to when these judgments occur. And uh, as far as I can tell, and other people come up with these schemes that somehow they're all going at the same time. Well, that's not the way the narrative reads here, and so I think one leads to the other, and as I just mentioned, it's the seventh in the series that introduces the next series. So it seems to me that they're, they're one following the other. But when we come to these seals, the six seals, uh, we, we covered a, a number of them. We covered the first three. In fact, we covered the fourth one. But I want to look at it again. It's just a devastating concept. In chapters uh, 6 and verse 7, we see the fourth seal. It reads this way. And when he had broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living creatures say, Come. And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. And he that sat on it had the name of death. And Hades followed him. Now notice He is death. He's bringing death. And behind him is Hades coming. That's going to be the dwelling place of unsaved folk. Following him. And the authority was given to them them over a fourth of the earth. That's why I wanted to go back to this one. A fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, with wild beasts of the earth. Now, because there is so much uh, um, conflict, the false Christ comes, that's the first seal. We have universal conflict, that's the second seal. And then the third seal has to do with famine. And I think I pointed out, when you go into a combat situation, especially in today's world, you just annihilate everything. And vegetation, gardens, and all that kind of stuff, polluted water, and all and all. And so it becomes a devastating, deadly Kind of existence that uh, people live in, but the text tells us in the fourth seal that there are going to be those who are capable of killing uh, one fourth of the earth. And I pointed out to you the if you look it up on the internet, three point seven billion people, twenty five percent of that. If you if you do the mathematics. Comes out to 1.8, 1.83 billion people are killed, and and I think we tried to help you to understand what that means. When you also look up the continent of Africa, just to use an example, the population of Africa is 1.3 billion people. In other words, this death toll is beyond the entire population of Africa. That's going to be a devastating kind of thing. And so that's where we are in the context, and we're moving from that into the fifth seal and the martyrdom of the saints. Now let's stop and have a word of prayer before we go. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity of looking into your word. And when we see some of the things that are here, We recognize that uh, we should be very grateful and very thankful that you have promised us that we are not going to be part of this experience. And so we we thank you for that. And help us to understand, maybe it will motivate us, Lord. Help it to motivate us to talk to others about Christ. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when we come to verse 9, class, we come to the fifth seal. And it's martyrdom of the Saints. Now, I want you to notice uh, when verse 9, And when he had broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar, that is the altar in heaven, where the Father sitting on the throne, the Son is there. And when he broke the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God, because of the testimony which they maintained. In other words, they were faithful to witness and to, to live a life that identified that they were Christians. Then it says, And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O, uh, o Lord, holy and true, with will thou uh, refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Now, there's a number of things that we need to address in this section. First of all, throughout the book of Revelation, there is an emphasis on martyrdom of believers. For example, when you go to chapter 7 and verse 13 and 14, it doesn't actually say that these folks are martyred. Uh, they are killed for their faith, but most people, and I'm inclined to agree, that these people are further uh, uh, people, further ones that are killed. Notice what it what it, it says in chapter seven, verse thirteen. And one of the elders answered, saying to me, "These are the clo- the enclothed in white robes. Who are they, and from where do they come?" And I said to him, "My lord, you know." And he said to me, these are the ones that come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, it goes on to describe them further. But it appears that this is another reference. Though it does not mean, it does not actually say that they're mortared, that they are. And then when you get to uh, a little bit further in chapter 13... You'll find the same thing if you'll turn there with me. Chapter 13, and uh, we'll look at uh, verse 5. Talking about Antichrist and what he's going to do. And there was given to him a mouth speaking, arrogant words and blasphemies. An authority to act for 42 months was given to him. In other words, this is mid-trib, got three and a half, year, uh, three and a half years to go. And he's given uh, this authority to act for 42 months was given to him. He opened his mouth in blaspheming against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, uh, uh, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. So we have martyrdom. We have people that uh, are now in heaven and they're asking God to deal with the fact that they need to be avenged, that uh, they have been killed and uh, tormented uh, by those who are in charge under the Antichrist. So throughout the book, we have this kind of a reference. Now, the thing that I want to say to you as we, we look at this uh, fourth uh, fifth seal is not only does it mention that people are killed, this is Revelation uh, 6, verse 9 now. Uh, It goes on to say, now in verse 10, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Notice the phrase, class, how long. And I have emphasized, and this is one of the things I cut back on emphasizing uh, this morning. I was going to go to about four or five different passages because today's Christian does not seem to understand uh, that the God's response is not always immediate. As a matter of fact, more often than not, it is not immediate. And these people are saying, now, Lord, how long is this going to be? You need to take care of this. They have mistreated us and killed us. How long is he going to be? Now, I have made a term. Uh, the, the president of uh, Washington Bible College, when I was, Betty and I were teaching up there before retired, I, I told him about this. And I used the term uh, "prev." Uh, President of uh, providential pace, providential pace. In other words, this is the way providence works. He has his own pace, his own rate of speed. And he said, where would you get that? Well, I didn't get anywhere except, that's the best way I know to describe it, providential pace. And that's what's happening here. Here's another example. And if you go to, for example, if you go to Psalm 9, At the end of that psalm, Lord, what are you doing? Chapter 10, verse 1. Why are you not responding? In other words, there's this providential pace that they're having to deal with. And that's what we have here. Now, I want you to notice there is a hint here of how long this providential pace is going to continue in this particular set of circumstances. Notice in verse 10 it says, How long, O Lord? But when you get to verse 11, listen to what it says. And there was given to each of them white robes, and they were told that they should rest for a little while. How long? Well, just for a little while. Class, do you know where we are? We're in mid-trib. We got three and a half years before the Demortism's end. The how long and the little while... It's three and a half years in this case. And most Christians will look at that in their life, whatever the circumstances would be. And they're going to start saying things like the psalmist said in, uh, in the Psalm uh, 73, when he said, my feet had almost slipped because I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They're getting bothered with murder. And Lord, you're not doing anything. So he says, my feet had almost slipped. And then it gets a little bit further in Psalm 73. And you know what he says? I'm so glad I didn't say anything. Because when I went to the sanctuary, I recognized their Hebrew afterward. What's going to happen to these people for all eternity? And he said, okay, God's just. He's going to take over, but we believers class need to understand that God's response is not on our timetable. Everybody with me? Now, notice. Then we talk about the We talk about the uh, perplexity of the providential pace, and you know, there's one other passage I would like. I would like to look at, and that's uh, Isaiah 40 with reference to providential pace. I think it would be good. Isaiah chapter 40, it's a passage that is familiar. As soon as you get there, you'll know what I'm talking about unless unless you've already figured it out. But here's what it says when you get to verse 27 of Isaiah 40. Now, we're talking about providential pace, and these mortared saints are saying, how long? And it, the answer is, it's going to be up to three and a half years. So Isaiah 40, verse 27, we read this. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel? How do you, how do you make statements like this about Yahweh the God of Israel? And he goes on. My way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. Now, how do they come up with those kind of questions that are arbitrarily reflecting on the righteousness and holiness of God? How do you do that? Well, it's because, as we look at the text, it is because God's not responding when they think he ought to. But notice what the reminder is. Do you not know, verse 28, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary and tired. Now look up here. You know what he's saying? He, he's not hiding his head in the sand. He knows exact. He doesn't ever sleep, for goodness sake. He knows what's going on. Amen? Then the second thing he says. His understanding, this is the way it's described in mine, his understanding is inscrutable. In other words, his understanding is perfect. He knows what's going on in your life. He's wide awake, and he knows exactly what is happening. And then notice, he doesn't doesn't grow weary. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. He's going to take care of you in his own way. Then, notice in verse 31, "...yet those who wait for the Lord..." will gain new strength. In other words, you just keep on trusting Him. Uh, here, I'll give you a passage. The parallel is. In Isaiah 26, it says, uh, "The uh, Trust in the Lord always. Why? Because He is a everlasting rock. You can trust Him. Amen? Now, we go back, providential pace, I went further than I should have. But that's such an important issue. So we see there's martyrdom. By the way, that could happen to people like you and me. In other parts of the world that's going on right now, it talks about uh, in in other countries where Christians are beheaded. Well, we're going to look at a verse this morning that said Christians are going to be beheaded here as well. Now, so we have uh, the perplexity of providential pace. We have martyrdom. But we also have divine revenge. Notice what it says. Will thou refrain, in the middle of verse 10, Will thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. You ought to write it down. Rest of the Bible, when it talks about vengeance, that's God's property. Stay away, and it's always based on Deuteronomy 32 and verse 35. Now, when are you going to revenge? I want you to go with me now to another passage of Scripture. That passage is Romans chapter 12. This is one of the key passages in the New Testament, and it's based on Deuteronomy 32. Romans 12, 19, and 20. There's an exhortation to you and to me. 12, 29, 19, and 20. I'm sorry. 19 and 20. Got it? Everybody there? Look at it. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. Why? It is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. So I'm not to take revenge. That's something we are to leave up to God. And it may be a while before He does, but we're to wait. Not get anxious. Don't you try to take away revenge from him. That's his private property. Then notice verse 20. But if your enemy is hungry, what should you do? Feed him. If he is thirsty, give him the drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Now, you know, a lot of people have no idea what that means. And I've not heard very many teachers or preachers deal with it. But uh, if you go back to antiquity, especially the history of Egypt, one of the ways the Egyptian people would indicate their repentance is they would put coals in some kind of a container on top of their head, and that was indication of repentance on their part. And when you go to Proverbs uh, 25 and verse 21 and 22, it talks about this putting uh, coals on the head. And that's what Paul is quoting here. And so he's saying, you will heap coals on their head. You'll bring about repentance possibly in their life. How? By doing good while they're taking advantage of you. Don't be vengeful. Leave that to God. Do good. Notice what he says, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome the evil that others throw at you with good. With good. Do things that are good for them. And what could you possibly be doing? You could be bringing about uh, repentance on the part of those people. Amen? Now, so that's something we need to keep in mind when we are talking about uh, how people treat us. This is the the idea in the text. How long, Lord, they recognize God? You're supposed to take care of this. So there is uh, vengeance that comes uh, from God, and we'll leave it to leave it with Him. Now, there's a step further that we need to go. Another item that needs to be covered. Look at verse 11. And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for that a uh, little longer. That's for that three and a half years. Till the tribulation is over. And they'll be resurrected. We'll see later. But they to put on white robes. Now. I want to emphasize that. I want you to go with me to chapter, nine, uh, chapter 7, verse 9. Notice what the text says. It mentions the robes again. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no man could count, from every nation, all the tribes, the peoples, the tongue, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. See that? Now, go to verse 13. And one of the elders answered, saying to me, These are those who are clothed in white robes. Who are they, and from where have they come? And he goes on to describe they come out of the tribulation, and they had washed their robes. Verse 14. Robes are mentioned in chapter 6 and three times in chapter 7. I bring that up for this reason. These people, folk, have not been resurrected. How do I know that? Go with me to Revelation 20. Revelation 20. And you'll see where I'm going with it. Revelation 20 and verse 4. Everybody there? Chapter 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them... And judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been, watch it, beheaded. Because of the testimony of Jesus. And because of the word of God. And those had not, and those who had not worshipped the beast, nor his image. And had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life. In other words, they were resurrected. And they reigned with Christ. For a thousand years. So the resurrection. Listen to me now. Of tribulation people. That have died. They do not come back to life. Until the end of the tribulation. So that they can go into the millennium. And reign with Christ. For the thousand year reign. Everybody with me. You say okay. What does all that mean? It means this. These people in chapter 6. And in chapter 7, have white robes. You figured it out yet? What do they hang the robes on? If they're not resurrected yet. The implication class, and I'm totally convinced that this is true, is that there is a temporary body given to people before they are resurrected. I have a young son, Timmy, who died when he was one day old. Mom and dad. Other friends. Family. They're in heaven. Are they simply an immaterial spirit? I don't think so. I think they have a temporary body. Because these folks have white robes that they wear. But they are not resurrected to get their new body until Revelation chapter 20. Am I making sense? This is a temporary body. In other words, Moses has a temporary body. Abraham has a temporary body. Judges have a temporary body. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. Think of all the great saints that are waiting for their resurrection that will come in the millennial kingdom, at the beginning of millennial kingdom. Are they in just immaterial beings? They could be, but the implication here seems to be they have a temporary body. I want to say physical, but I don't know if that's the word I should use or not. But the point is they have some kind of body. So when I go to heaven, my wife and I were talking about this the other day, we talk about our little son, Tim, quite often from time to time. I just made my Last trip, my son took me so I could see the grave. I know he's not there, but I still wanted to see the grave. Does that make sense? And the bottom line is, this passage seems to indicate to me, he has a body. And if the would let me die of my terminal cancer situation uh, this week before Christmas, I'm going to see Tim. He's going to have somebody some kind of body, so I will be able to know who he is. I will be able to touch him, and he'll be able to touch me because I have a temporary body. Amen? Is that helpful to you? I think that's a significant fact that most people don't hear from the Word. Okay. So we talked about martyrdom. We talked about the perplexity of providential pace. God doesn't move in judgment as fast as we think he should. But we're to leave vengeance with him. He will take care of that. Don't you try to take that away from him. Now, notice verse 11 again now. And there was given to each of them a white robe. These are the people that are killed. And they're before the throne of God in heaven. They've been killed on the earth during the tribulation. And they were told that they should rest for a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who had to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. Now, let's stop. There's more, more to them that's going to occur. And God knows (coughs) way ahead of time. He knows from before the foundations of the world how many and who they are. And the verse that helps me to understand this for me is Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. He worketh all uh, things after the counsel of his own will. Why? that those of us who first trusted in Christ should be to the glory of His name. In other words, God didn't save us, put us as believer priests in this world, simply to share the gospel. He wants us to go for whatever He has planned, which includes adversity, class. Why? Because it's going to bring glory to his name. I've got prostate cancer. That's bringing glory to his name. As long as I remain faithful. In the midst of that. We lose loved ones. And we respond properly. Do we hurt? Yes. But in the midst of it all. We've got to keep in mind. His purpose for our life. Is to bring glory. To his name. Amen? Now, notice then, that's what all these people are going to be doing. Then notice verse 12. We have another seal. uh, Seal number 6. Look what it says in verse 12. And I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun became black. Total eclipse. I don't know what it is. But the sun becomes black. And the, uh, the whole moon became like blood, uh, the blood moon. And, we, you know, you work your way through Scripture, you'll see emphasis on the, on the uh, moon quite often. Sun becomes black with sackcloth of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And then verse 13, look at it. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth. As a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. Now let's talk about that. Stars coming down like figs off the fig tree in a windstorm. That's figurative language, I think, or everybody understands. Uh, But the point that I think that needs to be made is we need to understand what we're talking about when we talk about stars. And I looked up a definition. Here's a good definition of a star. It says it is self-luminous, gaseous, celestial body. Okay? You can see them. But when we talk about stars, there are stars, are planets that are not stars, and we can't see them. We can see the moon. We can see certain uh, planets out there, but there are uh, planets that we don't see. And let me just share with you: when he talks about stars falling, have we got? Has God got the capability of really uh, blasting the Earth with stars? Yes, He does. Uh, For example, asteroids. There's a term we need to understand. Thousands of non-luminous small planets. That's the definition. 95% of the asteroids are between Mars and Jupiter. 95% of them. And uh, scientists tell us the size it's from one mile to 600 miles. How would you like an asteroid 600 miles in diameter hit this earth? If you go to Atlanta, you're 150 miles. you got to multiply that. That's how wide some of these rascals are, and they are capable of falling to the earth. A hundred thousand of them orbit the sun. A hundred thousand of them. One mile to six hundred miles. I'm not trying to belabor the point, but I want you to understand if those kinds of things, in numbers and size hit the earth people on the earth are in big trouble now, now notice uh, one other thing there are meteors they' are fragments from the asteroids so the asteroids can uh, fragment and <coughs> smaller pieces can come down and hit the earth and we know of, we've had cases like that just recently and meteorites uh, when that uh, meteor, actually breaks through the atmosphere. And James Stan on television the other night said, we had this great fiery thing going through the sky that burned up over Georgia. What are we talking about? We're talking about a meteorite. That's an asteroid that has penetrated the Earth's atmosphere, and it's a break-off from an asteroid. Hundreds, thousands of them. And they can fall on the Earth in this particular judgment, like figs off of a fig tree in a windstorm. How would you like that 600 miler to hit Alabama? Alabama would disappear. you understand how devastating this is? Now, that, that is a judgment. That is the sixth judgment. Uh, geological disturbances that are going to come in this world. Think about all those things hitting the earth, the dust, the destruction, devastation everywhere throughout the world, all at the same time. Then notice verse 17, class. It says, uh, no, go back uh, to um, verse 14. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island were moved out of the way. Now, if you remember the Biblios, the books, like the Lamb's Book of Life, Biblios, that's where we get our word Bible from. It means a little book. And But back then, they had them on a scroll and they would roll them open and then what it's saying is they close up. And the, the noise... And everything that comes from that moves mountains out of their place, moves islands out of their place. See it? That's devastation. How'd you like to live on an island that moves off of its foundation? <laughs> Be kind of tough. Sure is something beyond tornadoes and hurricanes huh. Now notice what it says, Verse 15, "And the kings of the earth and the great men, The commanders of the rich and the strong and every slave, every free man, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Doesn't matter what your status is, you're in the same boat with everybody else. Now notice verse 16. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now class, I want to make an observation. When they make statements like this, that means unsaved people have an innate awareness of God's divine judgment on sin. Isn't that right? It's the great day of the Father and the Son and the wrath. They've been denying that all their life. But now it comes time, it's catching up with them. Come to verse 17. I was trying to jump the gun. For the great day, this is what they say now. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? The great day of their wrath. Now, if you're taking notes, here's where you ought to make a note. This is uh, the day that is called throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. The day of the Lord. The great day of His wrath. And the day of the Lord covers three segments of time in human history. One, it covers the tribulation period. Two, it covers the millennial kingdom. And three, it covers the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem coming down from above. Now, how do I know that? Because all you got to do is start working your way through the Old Testament and the New Testament where it references the day of the Lord and you'll recognize it comes to those three areas. Second observation I would make is it starts with the tribulation. That means the rapture, when we're taken up into heaven to be with the Lord, initiates the day of the Lord. Everybody with me? Therefore, we go to the New Testament want you to go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Hold your place in Revelation. Go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we'll see uh, what it says. In chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians 13 through 18, we have a description of the rapture. How that uh, my Timothy will come down with the Lord. His body will come out of the grave. He'll get a resurrected body and then I will be instantly changed. That's the rapture and we're taken into heaven to be with Christ. Now, when all that is, uh, is described in verses 13 to 18 in chapter 4, we come to chapter 5. Notice what it says. Now, as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you for you yourselves know full way that the day of the Lord will come. There it is. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And he goes on to share with us and argue with us, we're going to heaven. So we're not going to be here when all that's going on. Now, you know that, Paul says. I taught you eschatology. Okay? So we know then that the day of the Lord covers what we call the tribulation period. Now, it also covers class, and I want you to write it down, Joel chapter 2, just just an example in the Old Testament. I want you to turn with it uh, to that passage, Joel chapter 2, and we'll see that the day of the Lord covers the millennial kingdom as, as, as well. Joel chapter 2. <clears throat> now, notice, when you get to Joel chapter 2, verse 1, It starts talking about the day of the Lord. Notice what it says. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. Why? For the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness as the dawn spreads upon the mountains. And there is a great and mighty people. In other words, In the millennial uh, uh, um, period, uh, it's going to be a day of trouble, uh, a tribulation period first. That's what we have here. Notice, and these people are like, and it describes them as you work your way through it. I'm not going to spend the time. But it describes these people as coming like a swarm of locusts. never mentions that name. It just describes they move straight ahead and they destroy and consume everything in their sight so the day of the Lord includes the tribulation first everybody with me Joel chapter 2 verse 18 watch it we're still in the day of the Lord it continues to talk about the day of the Lord uh, later but then the Lord will be zealous for his land he will have pity on his people and the Lord will answer and say to his people Behold, I am going to send you grain and new wine and oil. You will be satisfied in full with them. So the day of the Lord, according to Joel chapter 2, verses 1 to 17, covers the tribulation period. But 18 and following the day of the Lord includes the millennial kingdom where he blesses Israel again. Everybody with me? So when you go to 1 Thessalonians 5 and compare it with chapter 4, when you, and I didn't mention this one, when you go to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, it talks about saints that are not in the tribulation period. And this is called the day of the Lord in many passages. Okay? But the day of the Lord also includes the millennial kingdom, Joel chapter 2, verse 18 and following. Then there's one more. I want you to go with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, and we'll see Peter using this same term, chapter 3, verse 10. Notice what it says. Here's your term again. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. In other words, this is described in Revelation as a time When the earth is destroyed and you have a new heaven and a new earth. That's what he's talking about here. When does it occur? According to Peter, during the day of the Lord. Now, class, what is that saying to us? When the text talks about this great day of their wrath has come, hide us from the wrath of the Father and the Son. What are we talking about? We're talking that that period that begins with the tribulation goes through the millennial kingdom, and goes all the way into the new heaven and new earth. Everybody with me? Got it? That's the day of the Lord. So the great wrath uh, that has come upon them, and who is able to stand? Now our time's gone. I wanted to cover more. But I want you to go back next Sunday in preparation for class. Uh, Go over your outline that I gave you, And uh, we're because we're going to go into the first of the uh, parenthetical sections. Uh, We're going to end with chapter uh, six and the sixth seal. We'll go all the way through chapter seven. And it's not until you get to chapter eight that you see the seventh seal. So something's happened in between the two. And it has to do with what's going on in heaven. Now, class, I've covered a lot of material. I hope that wasn't boring to you. But this is stuff that we need to understand. And if we understand it, then all of a sudden revelation and what God's doing makes more sense. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray we'll take to heart these things and we'll begin to share the truth of the gospel with others. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name.